Well, it's my hope and prayer that after um, the short time that we have together today, that your EQ will be much improved, and your IQ, and your knowledge. So all three, because we're going to be talking about something that has amazing potential for health that is often overlooked. In fact, I will submit to you, it's been overlooked so much that it's almost a travesty as we look back at our history um, as a nation, we've overlooked this, we've kind of thought to ourselves there was really nothing to it, but now within the last 10 years, 12 years or so, we're coming back and realizing, hey, there's really something to this of bowels, bacteria, and brains subject. There's really something to it after all. Let's start with a word of prayer. Dear Father in heaven, we ask that you would give us wisdom because we know that ultimately when we study the human body, we need to go to the maker of the human body. So we pray that you would give us wisdom to understand physiology, understand its application, understand how we can live in harmony with these uh, wonderful little workers that you've placed in our large intestine, these probiotic bacteria, and we pray that you would help us more than ever, to be appreciative of the wonderful bounties and blessings you've set before us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So this is actually part one of two. This is part one of two. If you look on your schedules tomorrow, we're going to be finishing up this subject with the um, presentation Food and Mood. It's going to be looking at uh, very, very similar aspects of uh, probiotic bacteria, but we're going to be looking at foods that actually promote the growth of proper probiotic bacteria. It's actually an amazing study. You would think, well, we don't need a whole lot of time to talk about that, but honestly, you could spend months at a seminar looking at all of the recent research, and this is research that has come out since pretty much 2003 all this new research that has basically exploded on the the field of the medical literature that is showing that there really is something to this concept. Now, I will preface that with saying that uh, for the last, uh, prior to 2003, for the last 70 years, uh, or prior 70 years uh, before that, as a medical culture, we had dismissed the idea that what's in our colon really could affect us. And I don't really know what brought it about. You can study the historical research and kind of get an idea. But during the early 1900s, this was the talk of the day. And in fact, it probably was too much of the talk of the day during that time. Uh, But one such uh, physician researcher actually wrote in the journal, the American Journal of Gastronomy, or Gastroenterology, in 1920. It is probable that future years will show that many of the diseases classed today as of obscure origin will be understood to be directly or indirectly due to states of chronic toxemia from the intestinal canal to be directly or indirectly due to states of chronic toxemia toxemia from the intestinal canal. That is worth repeating. You know why? Because there was a war that was raging during this time. 
And it was basically raging between two different ideologies. One thought that there really was something to this uh, wisdom here displayed. The other said there's nothing to it. It's just um, hypothetical. It's, uh, it's just uh, too obscure, too unknown. And in fact, it just seems like a fanciful theory. And so you had this warring against uh, this ideology by many individuals. But there was reason to war against this ideology. Because some people took this kind of information and they became fanatical about it. I'll give you an example. The study of how the, uh, well, they, they used to term it auto-intoxication. Auto-intoxication of the, uh, the colon producing things or the um, byproducts of putrefaction and fermentation producing things that leached out into the blood and then intoxicated or caused um, toxemia in the body or toxic type um, developments. So some of these doctors said, okay, we see that there seems to be a correlation between depression, between diseases, and between um, the colon. So we're going to actually cut the colon out altogether. And we're going to do a colon resection and take that irritating colon out and the person will be all the better. And they performed thousands of these operations thinking that they would be a cure to this toxemia or this auto-intoxication. Now, when studied, when actually looked, uh, the research was looked upon, we realized that, hey, this wasn't such a good idea because these people didn't really benefit. We need our colons. There's a reason why God gave us that organ. And increasingly, we become aware that, yes, it plays a very important role, not only in withdrawing fluids from the feces, but also in positively um, providing um, nutrition in a, a kind of a obscure but necessary way. So there were these two classes of medicine that were warring, and I'll tell you which one won. It was the class of medicine that said, this is just ridiculous. Let's discard it. And so from 1930 on until about 2003, anyone who came up with the idea that something could come out of the colon and cause problems was basically um, called a fanatic or just uneducated. Even though there were some studies that were coming out that were saying, hey, maybe this does happen, maybe this does happen over here in the colon, uh, these studies were kind of dismissed. And even in the 1970s or 1980s, I believe, there was a research article saying that this concept of auto-intoxication really is a thing of the past. We don't need to revisit it. But the amazing thing about that is we have revisited it, and we've realized we've been wrong for over 70 years. And people's lives have suffered because of it. We're living in a state in which 26.2% of Americans, according to the National Institute of Mental Health, suffer from a diagnosable medical or mental disorder every year. So one out of every four Americans every year, according to the National Institutes of Mental Health, will suffer from a diagnosable 
mental disorder. I call this a mental health crisis. Now, we're in a physical health crisis. We're in a health care crisis, but we're also in a mental health crisis as well. And I'll submit to you, what we're about to discuss today is not a cure-all. It's not going to solve all of our problems, but I do believe it's important to understand and to make it a part of our lifestyle, a part of our knowledge base. But it definitely isn't the panacea that some physicians touted it to be in the early 1900s. However, scientists have realized there is a direct connection between your gut bacteria and your colon. There is a direct connection. But to understand this connection, we first need to understand a little bit about physiology. Otherwise, we could get misled. We could get drawn away. We could end up going home and spending thousands of dollars on probiotic supplements that may or may not even help us. I'm not doubting the fact that probiotics are often helpful, but we could, without the proper understanding of physiology, we could place an emphasis on, a, on an area that should only be a minor consideration. Because I'll submit to you, if you want healthy gut bacteria, probiotics are not the ultimate solution. They're a help, but they're not the ultimate solution. And you don't have to uh, just take my word for it. We're going to show that through the evidence. But first, let's look at the physiology. Let's talk about the concept of bowels. Now, I know the stomach is not a bowel, but it does play a role in protecting the bowels. The stomach is what we call the gatekeeper of the small intestine. Does anyone know why? What is the normal pH of the human stomach? It's roughly 2. What is that, acidic or alkaline? lower the pH, the more acidic. And so a pH of 2 is enough to dissolve many substances. And I'm very thankful that we have a protective layer of mucus and a very um, uh, capable set of cells to produce this mucus to protect our stomach from disintegrating itself. But that acid also is helpful in destroying some of these bacteria that we may inadvertently put into our mouths. Now, if you wash your hands before eating, I think that's a great practice. But chances are you're still going to introduce bacteria into your stomach that you may not necessarily want to be there. We call these pathogenic uh, bacteria, disease-causing bacteria, but there are other strains of bacteria that you still may not want to have in your intestines. They may not cause disease outright, but they may be interfering with things like mental cognition. So, first of all, it's important the stomach is healthy. The stomach is really being that gatekeeper that it needs to be to prevent unwanted strains of bacteria from entering into the bowels. It's pretty amazing. Studies are showing that the chronic use of uh, proton pump inhibitors and antacids are causing massive amounts of small bowel intestinal overgrowth, or small intestine bacterial overgrowth. And uh, we'll talk about the detriments of this as we go on. But suffice it to say, it's basically leaving the gate open and allowing some of these more harmful bacteria to come in. Let's talk a little bit about the small intestine. Basically, upon leaving the stomach, 
we have a, a sphincter muscle that opens up the duodenal, uh, into the duodenum, and food is allowed to pass through. We have an accessory organ called the gallbladder that contracts, and bile is poured out on that acidic content that's leaving the stomach, neutralizing it, making it more, I guess, palatable and uh, less caustic to the tissues further on down the duodenum, the jejunum, and also, last but not least, the ileum. Now, take note, where does the food pass through from the stomach? To first the small or large intestine? Small. And then, lastly, into the large intestine. This is the colon, another way of saying the large intestine. And we'll talk a little bit about um, the small intestine as we go on. First of all, Small intestine is the site of most nutrient absorption. It's very, very capable of extracting nutrients from our food. And there's a little diagram, cross section. It's very vascular, a lot of blood vessels. It also has a lymphatic channel that will take in fats and other substances that may not be able to penetrate into the bloodstream. It's just an amazingly complex system. And there are, every now and then, bacteria that pass by the system as well. You can imagine that you don't eat sterilized food, right? You don't put it into an autoclave and bake it at, I, what was that? I can't remember from my OR days. Um, but there's a standardized baking procedure to sterilize an instrument. But you're not going to be able to sterilize your cucumbers or your melons or your fruits, other fruits or vegetables you're going to get some bacterial contamination. Maybe some good bacteria, maybe not. Just depending on the environment in which it was produced, the people that handled it, and even the state of your hands when you picked it up and put it into your mouth. So, we'll talk a little bit more about the small intestine and food and interaction with um, things like probiotic bacteria tomorrow when we talk about food and mood but there is a very profound impact, a positive impact in many cases from some of these healthier bacteria. There's another look at the bowels, and it doesn't really seem like it's possible, but in the lining of the small intestine, the lining of the large intestine, there's a lot that's going on there on the microscopic level. And this is dealing with something that we call uh, the microbiome or the biosphere in the, the colon. I don't know if you're aware, but a startling statistic is that there are more bacteria that live mainly in your colon than you have human cells in your body. So in a sense, there's more of them than us, okay? <laughs> Now, in the, I'm not talking about a war that we're fighting. Sometimes there is a war going on between them and us. But wouldn't it be nice if we had this whole army of workers in the colon that were actually helping us survive? You know the term probiotic, you know what that means? For life. For life. We want probiotic bacteria in our colon. Amen? We don't want antibiotic or anti-life bacteria, I use that term um, loosely, 
but uh, we don't want some of these bacteria that are going to be causing problems in the colon. Here's a little diagram showing some uh, good strains of bacteria and some that we generally classify as not so good. We have the bifidobacteria that in the early days of the, um, the hypothesis that we could auto-intoxicate ourselves, bifidobacteria were the number one promoted um, probiotic bacteria. So early 1900s, this was the go-to bacteria. Why is that? Because it seemed to have such profound health benefits. And we'll talk about some of these as we go on. Another one here, E. coli. We normally have certain strains of E. coli that are not going to be causing problems in the body. There are some that, yeah, are pathogenic that will cause disease or pathogenic. But I'll submit to you, even healthy, not necessarily pathogenic E. coli can cause problems in the body. And we'll talk about that as we discuss permeability issues in the colon. And last but not least, lactobacilli. These are my favorite types of bacteria. And I could not stand here today and list out all of them before it would be, my time would be up to uh, finish presenting. There are so many diverse species of lactobacilli. It's absolutely amazing. And even from the inception of life, from when you are placed on your mother's breast, did you realize you are getting lactobacilli? Scientists, research scientists have found that even in mother's milk, there is, without the possibility of um, cross-contamination, there, there are lactobacilli present in mother's milk. So if your mother nursed you, you got probiotics along with that mother's milk. Pretty interesting, right? It makes us think maybe these things do belong there. Maybe we should have them. And there are a lot of foods that are naturally high in lactobacilli as well. I'll give you one, honey. They've actually isolated a number of different strains, I think four or five different strains in one study, uh, of lactobacilli from honey. And this is thought to be one of the reasons why honey is so wonderful when topically applied to a wound, because those lactobacilli will fight the pathogenic bacteria. They'll produce hydrogen peroxide and destroy them. So they're kind of like your little guards there for that wound, and the honey also helps to accelerate the healing. Quite amazing. But let's talk a little bit about these I would say bad bacteria. We can't really draw a definitive line between good and bad uh, in many cases in the gut because you'll still have a few of these come in every now and then. And it's not necessarily going to negatively affect your health. The key is on the broad scale to have higher levels of these healthier bacteria, the bifidobacteria and many of the lactobacilli. Okay, let's go on here. Clostridium difficile, anyone heard of that one? This is kind of on the rise, as I said, because of the chronic use of antacids and the proton pump inhibitors. The gastric acid, um, it, just medications that de decrease gastric acid. And because of that, the Clostridium difficile have a much easier time entering into the small bowel and even causing 
small bowel intestinal overgrowth. Many people are suffering from this today, and uh, it's hurting them in more ways than they realize beyond just the chronic diarrhea. Let's go on here. I'm not going to spend too much time on these different strains uh, because we have a limited amount of time, but I want to just put things in perspective. In terms of lactobacilli, there are, in a vague sense, there are two categories of lactobacilli. One of them is called a homofermenter. The other is called a heterofermenter. What does the word homo mean? The same. And what is hetero? Different. Okay. What this terminology is showing is that a homofermenter is having a fermentative process that is keeping its surroundings the same as when it entered into that area. Okay, it's kind of like the Boy Scouts or the Pathfinders when they go into a campsite. They're supposed to leave it the same or better than when they found it, correct? This is what the homofermenters ideally are doing. Now, the heterofermenters are another story because they're actually taking glucose and turning it into more than what would be beneficial to us. They actually produce lactic acid, which is, in a, um, a general sense, is not a bad uh, um, compound to have in moderate levels, especially the L-form. Uh, they're L-form and D-form lactic acid. L-form lactic acid would be more easily converted into lactate in the body. And lactate, wow, lactate is an amazing compound. I'll tell you a little bit more about that in the next slide. But before we go there, let's talk a little bit more about the heterofermenters. Carbon dioxide. So in terms of the amount of um, byproducts the heterofermenters are producing, there are other different um, variations of acids and um, gases that will be produced during the fermentation cycle. But the heterofermenters in general are going to produce three main things. Besides about 50% lactic acid, they're going to produce about 25% ethanol. What's that? That's, it's liquor, right? Ethanol is, I mean, you can clean your hands with it too, right? But uh, it's alcohol and carbon dioxide, which is a gas. Now, one thing we know about bacteria that live in the colon, after a person is deceased for a number of days, the bacteria that live in the colon start to proliferate, and especially those that will turn um, glucose or other uh, compounds into gases and solvents, start to rapidly multiply. Why is that? Because think about this. You're pressurizing dissolving fluids into the body, and pretty soon the body dissolves and returns to the dust, right? It's kind of a, a blessing in a sense that we have this capability. But what if that happens before we die? Does that sound like a good thing? Now, this is not going to get to the extent of major putrefaction, but what if it happens on a minor level? Do you think it would be a good thing for a bacteria to start producing alcohol, ethanol alcohol, in the colon? Understand this. Studies have found that ethanol alcohol, when injected directly into the colon, causes acute colitis or inflammation of the colon. And so if we are allowing these bacteria to proliferate and to produce alcohol, they're inflaming the colon. Other studies have found that when 
Uh, ethanol comes in contact with the, the tight junctions of the epithelial cells or the cells that line the colon. It splits them open and allows for increased permeability. Does anyone know what that, the layperson's term is for increased colon permeability? Mm-hmm. That's correct. And that's a very simple way of understanding this concept. So, in theory, then, more heterofermenters could cause more what? Leaky gut. But let's not take that theory and make a law about it, because there are pretty um, amazing factors that also play a big role in um, even stabilizing these bacteria, stabilizing these compounds. And let's see, I'll quickly jump over before I go there to these mice. I told you I would tell you about this lactate. We used to think lactic acid was a terrible thing, right? Because we exercise and we start to get this pain in our legs and our joints, um, you know, post-exercise muscle soreness or delayed onset muscle soreness. We used to think it was because of lactic acid. But now we realize, if you read the most recent literature, it's a pretty well-defined science now that shows that that's the result of microtrauma, or traumatized muscular tissue, or cartilage, or even bones. But lactic acid is very quickly, in solution, turned into something called lactate. And lactate is an amazing compound. There were studies that looked at mice that were um, fed lactate. One group was fed just a controlled diet, standard diet. And what they found was quite amazing. When these mice were running through their maze, uh, they had put them through this uh, maze every day uh, for a certain amount of days. And they, the mice got to be pretty good and uh, had pretty good timing in getting through the maze. Um, and what they did was kind of cruel. They took both sets of mice, the ones that were fed lactate and the ones that were fed other uh, animal chow, and they gave them both traumatic brain injuries. Poor little mice, right? I guess it was for a good purpose, though, for our admonition. What they found was that the group of mice that did not have lactate, they got confused. They didn't know where to go. They had the, the very um, noticeable effects from post-traumatic brain injury. However, the group of mice that were fed lactate ran straight through the maze. They showed no signs of residual brain injury from this traumatic incident. And what they found as a result of this and similar studies is that lactate is neuroprotective. It protects the neurons from injury. How many of you could use a little neuroprotection? I, I would like some too. And that's not the only beneficial aspect of lactate. Other studies in mice have found that, and by the way, we generate lactate even without bacteria. If you're exercising, you know what you're doing? Especially the, uh, maybe not the 10 second exercise, but once you start to get past like 30 seconds into two minutes, more intense exercise, you're using uh, anaerobic metabolism without oxygen metabolism and you're generating lactic acid which is in turn turning into lactate and during this time the brain says hey I want it 
the channels open up in the, the blood-brain barrier during this time, and it pref a preference is shown for lactate. There's even a theory going around, I don't know if it's true or not, in the medical research, that neurons actually run on lactate. It's kind of interesting. You can research that a little bit more if you like to. But one thing that was shown to be a fact was that not only does this lactate help with the brain, but it also helps to regulate hormones. In fact, they took two groups of mice, one female, one male group of mice, and they had them run in this little swimming pool with a continuous flow. And so they're just swimming, and they monitor the levels of blood lactate, which occurred during intense swimming exercises. What they found was quite amazing. With the increase in the lactate on both the male and the female, there were significant hormonal increases. For the males, a significant increase in testosterone, and for females, a significant increase in the hormone progesterone. Now, both of these hormones can be tied to mental illness when they're either high or too low. Um, so I think that's pretty interesting to note that lactate has many beneficial properties in the body. So when we see lactate, or we, see, we hear of lactic acid, I don't want you to get a bad idea about it. It's only the uh, abnormal levels of lactate that are really gonna cause problems, or if people have problem metabolizing possibly the D form of lactate. And there are certain bacteria that will produce more D lactate than L lactate. We'll talk about that more tomorrow as well. Okay, so let's go on here. And I want to show you something kind of interesting. Does anyone know what this is? It looks like what? Okay, it, it is a form of bacteria. This is the bacteria that generally will colonize your skin. It's a, that's, that's right. Now, it's interesting because Bacteria live in places sometimes we don't normally, we, we can't normally see them. Like, you wouldn't see millions of bacteria living on your skin, but they're there. Did you realize on your fresh fruits and vegetables, there are millions of bacteria possibly growing in a symbiotic relationship with that fruit or vegetable? It's actually quite interesting. And studies have found that 35% of these lactic acid producing bacteria that live on fresh fruits and vegetables can survive transit through the stomach. It's almost as like as if they were meant to be placed in the, the bowels. They can survive. And not only the acid, but also the dramatic rise in pH when the bile is secreted on that food stuff. So it's actually quite, quite amazing. Now, it's interesting to note that um, not every food is going to have the same bacteria on it. There were studies that were done using rural villagers in Africa and compared them with city dwellers in America. Also studies that looked at uh, people that lived in Tokyo in the city and then looking at the rural farmers. You know what they found? In almost every case, the people that lived on the land had the best bacteria in the colon. Why is that? One is less stress. The other is more fresh fruits and vegetables. That's really the reason, and it's actually quite amazing. 
Uh, one interesting study, the one I told you about in Tokyo, found that especially elevated were higher levels of bifidobacterium, which, uh, as I said before, is one of the, those bacterial species that was promoted in the early 1900s as being a very beneficial bacteria. Now, the neat thing about bifidobacteria is that if you were to supplement an individual with bifidobacterium, you would think, what's going to happen? You're just going to get a lot of bifidobacteria. You're going to reduce the diversity of the species, right? Because you're instilling this one strain of bacteria, and it's going to cause the other strains to die off. Well, that may happen to a limited extent. But you know what studies have found? The uh, outcome from bifidobacterium supplementation, it causes a greater diversity of probiotic bacteria in the colon. Just that one strain. You see, there are single strains of bacteria that actually will promote a host of other healthy bacteria as well to colonize an area. And the reason why is I believe that it's because of their, their byproducts. Did you realize that bacteria give us a lot more than we realize? Anyone like vitamin B12? You know where it comes from? It comes from bacteria. It doesn't come from yeast, doesn't come from fungus, doesn't necessarily come from the animals themselves that maybe have high levels of B12. It comes from bacteria. The cobalamins are produced by bacteria. But the amazing thing about this is they don't always give it to us. You have to have pretty high concentrations of B12 for diffusion to occur in one part of the small intestine for you actually to get that um, bacteria into the, uh, the um, cobalamin or the B12 into the circulation. But studies have found that if you've got one competing organism with another, they're going to fight each other and they're going to take those cobalamins and they're going to make bacteriocidins. They're going to make antibacterial substances with what they wanted to give you. And so we're going to talk about food combinations a little bit as well when we talk about mood and food. Because we want vitamin B12, right? We want to get all these beneficial compounds from these bacteria. Let's take a look here at a list. This is by all means not an exhaustive list of um, heterofermenting and homofermenting bacteria. I think we've got a technical difficulty if someone could advance, there we go. Thank you. So this is not an exhaustive list, and it may even be too small for you to read it. But the reason why I bring this out is because there are more than just one type of homofermenting bacteria. In fact, you probably have heard of, let's see, acidophilus, right? Acidophilus, once again, one of the most studied and most promoted uh, bacterial species in the early 1900s, and we're still realizing it's, it's a actually very beneficial bacteria. But it's a homofermenter and what we would term obligate homofermenter. What does that mean? That means it, it can't really use oxygen to metabolize. It has to be in an anaerobic environment to really thrive. Whereas these bacteria, the facultative, or facultative, yeah, facultative homofermenters, such as Lactobacillus plantarum or Lactobacillus curvatus or even the Lactobacillus barbaricus. These are bacteria that can survive in the open air. 
So where do you think a lot of these live? In the open air, right? Maybe on an apple, maybe on a cabbage, right? Cabbage is a rich source of a lot of these healthier forms of bacteria, especially Lactobacillus plantarum. This is quite amazing. Now, that being said, we also have these heterofermenters over here. What are these heterofermenters going to be producing again? Alcohol, carbon dioxide, and what else? What's that? Acid, okay. Lactic acid, carbon dioxide, and ethanol. So those main things. If you've ever tried to bake bread with a sourdough starter, you would never be successful if you were using one of these homofermenting bacteria. You know the reason why? They will not raise that bread. You'll get flat bread. Why? Because they're not producing gas. They're not leavening the, the dough. Okay? So these bacteria over here are wonderful to use if that's your choice to make sourdough bread. Uh, yeast, Saccharomyces cerversiae. If you want to bake bread, it's wonderful. But it's going to be also producing lots of gas and lots of alcohol. Not necessarily things that you want to have in your colon. Basically, you've got a compression against the colon wall of a solvent, which is going to possibly break open that junction. Okay, let's go on here. Here's uh, Lactobacillus plantarum close up. This is one of my favorite bacterial species. The reason why is it's been so well studied and it's been found to have so many profound effects on health, both physical and mental. That's Lactobacillus plantarum, P-L-A-N-T-A-R-U-M. Uh, just a few little tidbits here, shown to have tremendous antioxidant activity. It prevents intestinal permeability or leaky gut. And it lowers something called lipopolysaccharides. Lipopolysaccharides. This is the hidden compound that researchers back in the early 1900s had no idea about. But now when we study this compound, we realize, hey, there's really something to this concept of auto-intoxication, and especially dealing with its effects on the mind. Where does lipopolysaccharide come from? That's not it right there. That's our Lactobacillus plantarum. Lactobacillus plantarum, Lactobacillus acidophilus, and these other uh, more healthful bacteria are not going to be present, um, presenting much of this lipopolysaccharide. But the one strain of bacteria that is very noted for doing it is even the standard form of E. coli. Lipopolysaccharide is actually a component of the bacterial wall. And studies have found that when this is released, it actually causes um, increased permeability of the, um, of the intestinal wall. But also, on ter in terms of its mental effects, has been found at very, very low levels, systemically administered, to cause acute anxiety, depressive symptoms, and even cognitive deficits. It causes an immune response. It even causes impaired function 
in the integrity of the colon and something we call the blood-brain barrier. We have been blessed with the ability uh, to block out certain compounds from reaching the, uh, the brain. But when we have impaired uh, barrier function of the brain, we can have things come in and cause quite a bit of problems. Some of the things that can cause impaired permeability besides just the lipopolysaccharides have to do with what we do, what we think, what we eat, how we live. It's not just the E. coli because studies have found that even with regular strains of E. coli in the body, not everyone is going to have high levels of lipopolysaccharides. The causative factors have thought to be stress, for one, and for another, high fructose consumption. And I'm talking about not just fruits necessarily, but I'm talking about the refined forms of fructose. Interesting study found that fructose administration increased the in-circulation or the um, lipopolysaccharides that were floating around the bloodstream by 40%. 40%. So imagine the increased difficulties with cognition. Imagine the increased anxiety, depression, and cognitive deficits that occur as a byproduct of fructose administration there in the colon. It's quite amazing. Another one is fat, high-fat diets. Now, um, in general, we have a high-fat diet in the Western world. Uh, it could be anywhere from 40% and upward, depending on what kind of food we're eating. If we're eating a lot of fried foods, we could have a large percentage of our calories coming from fats. But studies have found that at 40% fat intake, caloric intake in the body, we have a greatly increased risk of these um, lipopolysaccharides. In fact, interesting study found that just one month of a standard Western diet increased plasma endotoxin or even toxins that are produced there in the gut by 71%, this high-fat diet. Now, I, I will give you a little caveat. Not all fats are going to cause this. And this research actually brought it out that fats from avocado, coconut, the more healthier fats are not going to necessarily cause the same issue. But suffice it to say, using an overabundance of cooking oils could possibly generate this. Another study showed that people that switch to a low-fat, low-saturated fat and fiber-rich diet for one month, decreased end bacterial endotoxin production in the blood by 38%. So diet plays a huge role in what is allowed to come out of the colon. We could be, in effect, auto-intoxicating ourselves by our diet. And we don't even realize it just because we're not promoting the health of the colon. Another interesting factor dealing with high-fat diet and low-fiber diet is that the less fiber you have, the less motility of the food contents or the less mobile of the food contents passing through the intestines. What does that mean? Constipation. 
And constipation provides more time for possibly adverse bacterial species to develop and more time for absorption of their detrimental compounds, particularly in the small intestine and particularly the, with those with small intestine bacterial overgrowth, which is becoming a more common phenomenon in this day in which we live. Now, there are some pretty hazardous things about some byproducts produced by um, Clostridium difficile. One of them is the propionic acid. Studies have found that propionic acid, when administered to rats, actually causes autistic-like symptoms. It's a direct injurious effect to the brain. And uh, we're actually just now starting to realize that autistic children have a, a huge issue with leaky gut. Upwards of, third, I believe, 38% of individuals in one study had altered permeability of their, uh, their colon in being autistic. And even if you, if you go to the first uh, degree relatives, they still have elevated levels. It's only until you start to get further and further out from the person suffering from autism that you see they have less and less intestinal permeability. Finally, you get to the normal who has, I think it's 14% or less uh, of those people have impaired intestinal permeability. So it's a huge... It's a huge area of study. And to be honest with you, as a society, we don't know as much as we should about this subject. And the reason why is because over 80 years ago, we said it didn't matter. And another reason why is because over 100 years ago, we got fanatical about it and started taking everyone's colons out. <laughs> so really, when it comes to this knowledge of probiotics, there's a narrow way in which we're to walk. We don't need to go out and eat probiotics with every meal. That's not necessary. Because if we are just eating a healthy diet, we're going to promote a healthy amount of um, bacteria and the healthy varieties of bacteria in the colon. You've heard of the term um, prebiotics, which are basically fibers and sugars that bacteria like to eat. Studies have found that even overdoing it in this can cause issues. So suffice to say, the best rule of thumb for getting our healthy bacteria is to just eat a simple, healthy diet. Plenty of fresh fruits and vegetables, low stress, and if you have stress, then to be able to work out your stress, maybe using some of the techniques that you're learning in the seminar, because stress affects more than we realize. It affects even those little bacteria that are growing in our colon. And some of those bacteria, they love us. And they're, they're showing it. They're living in a symbiotic relationship with us. And the more we show through our actions that we love them, the happier they're going to be too. And the more beneficial compounds they're going to deliver to our bloodstream. Suffice it to say, many people are hurting today in this day and age, but the secret or the solution to an ignorance-induced injury is education. And so throughout this series, as we present this topic further and further, we develop it more and more. It's my hope that you become more enlightened on the subject yourself and better prepared to share this vital information with others. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, 
a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio, and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.